From the Ecology Prime Studios, this is Circle for Original Thinking. I'm your host, Galena Pericio Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers. An open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each week, we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions. We ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day, political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one. And this time, not leave anybody out. Join us as we embark on this quest. On previous podcasts, we've been discussing, sometimes we discuss this man, Donald Trump, as a catalyst for the revealing of the American shadow, and how this presents both danger and opportunity. The danger is far easier to see. It's out front and ugly. Charlottesville, Lafayette Park, knees on neck, being shot in the back seven times. A 17-year-old kid murdering peaceful protesters. The previously repressed bigotry is out in the open. It's on TV. But as Gil Scott Heron knew, the real revolution begins in the mind, which is why the revolution will not be televised. Can the people change their hearts and minds about race? Can perpetrators of racial injustice cleanse themselves of prejudice and bigotry that they have been conditioned to see and feel? Can victims of oppression overcome historical trauma? Or is it even about history anymore? Or has the past returned? The nation appears to be on the brink of civil war if we're not already in it. With polarization as bad as at any time in our nation's history, how can we stop the violence, discussions about law and order ordinarily end up promoting division and triggering historical trauma. Is there a way to stop the cycle of violence and heal victims and perpetrators alike? Can the truth set us free? If so, how do we go about telling the story and who gets to tell it? As challenging as this time is with the underbelly of America exposed, this is also an opportunity to see America as it really is. The first step in changing anything is to see it for what it is and then create a new story that acknowledges the truth and envisions a better future. One obstacle to change is that systemic racism is not always to see, always easy to see or understand. It is both complicated and deeply enmeshed in the American psyche. It is not a black and white issue in more ways than one. Structural racism affects everyone and prevents America from achieving its sacred purpose, unity in diversity. This purpose is enshrined in our great seal, e pluribus unum, out of the many one, which is a beautiful idea, but one that has yet to be realized. There is some good news today. More and more people of all colors are coming together to protest against racism. The other good news is that white Americans are beginning to change their thinking. And in a compressed time frame, 
Just months ago, two-thirds of white Americans thought that police mistreatment of people of color was only a few bad apples. Now more than half of white Americans recognize that there is systemic racism in police enforcement. As volatile and ugly as today is, more people see the need for change. Many unanswered questions remain. Now that white people are beginning to see the extent of systemic racism, how many will act for change and how many will seek to hold on to their privilege? Who will win the next election and how much effect will that have? In a representational republic, politicians are always a reflection of the people. Even if the Trump era were to end right now, have we learned why he was elected in the first place? Is this the time we make real progress? Join us as we delve into all of this and probably much more with our guests, Oscar Edwards and David Boji. Now, I want to introduce my guest first. First, Oscar. Oscar Edwards is the managing member CEO of Higher Growth Strategies, LLC, or HGS. And I already told him if you just add you, Oscar, you've got hugs, H-U-G-S. And he's also an acclaimed speaker, a consultant, trainer, advisor, and a business coach with the ability to make complex subjects understandable and fun. In other words, he's a good storyteller. And Oscar goes way back with David Boji to their days in the early 80s at the Anderson School of Management, where Oscar received his BA in economics and his MBA in finance marketing. Oscar and David work with the South Central Los Angeles community. They work together first at the Joint Center for Community Studies with Dr. C.Z. Wilson. They did social science research and organizing with community-based groups around the impact of Reaganomics, Nickerson Gardens, Watts, and gang interventions. And they also worked with the late Leroy Wells on the development of a university student quality of life index, among other projects. And Oscar has hands-on experience in a lot in management, business modeling, strategic planning, managerial accounting, finance, for a host of industries, including construction, entertainment, sports, media, telecom, public works, public transportation, public safety, and public health. He's on the finance faculty for Los Angeles City College, and he's a curriculum designer and instructor for a number of other entrepreneurial eco-learning systems focused on women, minorities, and veterans. Capacity building is Oscar's passion. And Oscar has been recognized for his work with small businesses and his community volunteerism by the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, the California State Assembly and Senate, the United States Congress, the United Way of Los Angeles, and many other civic community organizations. And he received recognition early, winning the Outstanding Young Man in America Award in 1984 and a Lifetime Achievement Award for the Black Business and Professional Association in 2000. Now, now that's 20 years ago, and you're still looking young, Oscar, so I don't know. I, I tell you, Oscar is currently working with many community-based organizations to enhance their organizational capacity, including cultural centers, churches, financial institutions, and educational institutions. And he regularly works with communities of color to be self-reliant. Um, and also to embrace an intercultural dynamic that is the norm today. And, he, and of course, uh, one of the reasons we're bringing them, these two gentlemen together is that they're, they're working actively right now, Oscar and David, on the True Storytelling Intercultural Racism Conversation Module, and that's how I got to meet Oscar. Now I want to say a little about David, David Boji. 
is what Michel Foucault calls a specific intellectual. <laughs> I love that term. An international scholar confronting and deconstructing the regimes of truth with his own storytelling paradigm. He's written, I think it's 16 books, as well as a myriad of book chapters and peer-reviewed journal articles. He's been cited in over 5,000 books and articles, something like 5,700, almost 6,000 times he's been cited. He's been cited more times than Martin Sheet or Lindsay Lohan. His most recent books are True Storytelling. I'm talking, you, you've been cited for different things. Of course, you might have gotten some good trouble, too. But anyway, his recent books are True Storytelling from Rutledge, Francis and Teller with Jens Larson and Lena Brun, doing conversational storytelling interviewing for your dissertation. That would be useful. From Edward, El, Edward, El, Edward Elder Publishing with his wife, Grace Ann Rosil. He created the field of anti-narrative. That's anti as in A-N-T-E, not your auntie and not uh, not against. So before, anti-research, which analyzes all that is antecedent to the creation of Western narratives. And, and David earned his Ph.D. from the University of Illinois in 1978. He became assistant professor at Anderson School of Management at U UCLA, which is where he met Oscar, and then he became full professor at Loyola Marymount University, where he earned six Teachers of the Year awards, and he retired in 2018, but I don't think that's really the correct term because, like Leroy Little Bear once told me, you know, he leaves the retirement to Firestone. So he's really very much active teaching qualitative storytelling science methods at Cabrini University in Philadelphia. And he helped form the True Storytelling Rock Band. And that's with Grace Ann on bass and Jen's on guitar and Lena is on uh, sax, I think, and Ken is on, uh, uh, I don't know, lead guitar and James vocals. I'm not sure. He's going to have to explain that to us. The band teaches a loyal fan base of, of, of global participants on true storytelling ethics Ensemble Leadership Sustainability, and their newest seminar theme is with Oscar Edwards co-hosting Intercultural Conversations, a community-centered storytelling experience to restory narratives on racism. And they, they both hope for a more cooperative, equitable, and just society. You can learn more on True Storytelling com that's true hyphen storytelling.com he also convenes the annual quantum storytelling conference each December in Las Cruces that's Las Cruces New Mexico where the people there just say Cruces with emeritus professor Grace Ann Rosiel and that's where I met him five years ago so welcome to these guests I mean this, I'm so grateful to have both of you on the show because you're 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 really extraordinary people and and during an extraordinary time doing beautiful work together and that's part of what we like to do on circle for original thinking is highlight good collaboration and leadership so how are you today great, great. wonderful thank you, thank you thanks for, for that introduction wow oh you're, you're you're welcome you're welcome you, you came to las cruces just dressed as ben franklin I, I I did. <laughs> I was just starting the book Original Politics then, and I and I uh, 
and I was just beginning my research and uh, yeah, I dressed up as Ben Franklin to play out the part of uh, Ben speaking to uh, indigenous people because that's that's really how this country got started. So uh, the political nation anyway. So I want to talk about, uh, uh, I want to give you an opportunity at first to talk a little bit more about how you, you know, your story and how you got to know each other, how your stories converged at that time in the, in the 80s into this beautiful partnership in L.A. that continues today. So who would like to address that first? Uh, I'll go. Okay, Oscar, you go. I'll go first. Um, David and I uh, obviously connected at uh, Anderson while David was at Anderson. I had just uh, embarked and I had uh, basically passed on all the corporate offers I had coming out of the MBA program and decided to go an entrepreneurial route and go in and help Dr. Wilson, who had been serving in grad school as an administrative assistant, uh, who wanted to launch or expand a consultancy that he had part-time while he was an administrator. And he gave me that pitch. He said, I want to do it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want to do it. And that is what sold me when he said, because I'm a doer. <laughs> so he said, I want to do it. And I told him my story, my family background. He said, oh, yeah, you're an entrepreneur. You want to do it? I said, yeah. So I, I passed cool. on all the cor corporate offers. And we opened the office at 43rd and Crenshaw in uh, South Central Los Angeles. And, and uh, the rest was history. But that's where I met David. We took on a contract to manage the Joint Center for Community Studies, which I was the administrator. And that was basically a social science research uh, partnership with UCLA. And, and we had a number of uh, grants, uh, you know, city uh, state and federal grants to do uh, various research in the community, um, as well as uh, uh, sociological research, but also economic uh, uh, research as well. And so that's where I, met, I first met David. Uh, uh, I think CZ uh, identified David um, in his uh, efforts to identify researchers that might fit into the work at the Joint Center, and uh, I worked initially with David on the Reaganomics effort where we brought together community leaders. Uh, Kevin Martin, if you remember, David was our uh, data analyst. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember that Kevin and I go way back. Kevin and I went to high school together in Riverside, California. Oh. And Kevin and I were uh, neighborhood friends. We grew up in the same neighborhood, and he ended up, uh, you know, at UCLA in the same program, and we were reconnecting as well, all at the same time with you. So it was a uh, uh, very uh, serendipitous uh, harmony that took place, and and rest was history. But we did great work. I was so I was so happy that uh, uh, we were able to do the work that was needed at the time. Uh, in some ways, a similar time, as you well know, with Reaganomics, the impact on the, uh, the nonprofit community and the social service programs uh, across the country were impacted greatly, and uh, communities of color were impacted. So that was our connection, and then uh, obviously we reconnected uh, a few years ago. I reached out to you on some work I'm doing, on a doctoral effort, and we started communicating again, and I 
studied uh, your work, brought myself up to speed um, as, as the rock band leader of uh, true storytelling. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, this Black Lives Matter movement came about. Wow. And I, something touched my heart I, and said, I got to call David. Uh, something, David. Just, I got to call David. So I picked up the phone and I called you, and I wasn't sure what I was articulating. I was just telling you passionately what was happening to me, around me, personally, and that I felt we needed to do something, but it had to be, it had to be, it couldn't be the same thing. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be the same things, the same approaches, the same sort of lane that we've been in in terms of trying to solve these problems. And then I said, you know, I think, you know, uh, you know, let's let's try the storytelling. And then you invited me to the modules, and I went through the modules, and I said, I agree. I said, and no, I think this is it. I think we need to do this. Awesome. And I did my I did my storyboard, and I presented it to everyone. Yeah. And uh, uh, you you guys embraced the storyboard. The rock band embraced the storyboard, and here we are, two sessions in, going on the third session, and the feedback has just been overwhelming. Uh, yeah. As I've grown through the process of building my muscle around the principles of, of storytelling, true storytelling, I've shared my learning points with others, and it's fascinating just to see other people respond to uh, my really uh, summary of my experience. These are these are points that are coming out of me. I'm growing through this process. And it's, it's just, it's hard to explain that it's sort of a natural, and I know culturally storytelling from, you know, the African-American community and, you know, African culture is really how we live, have lived our lives. And yep. we didn't depend on books. We basically passed everything along by stories. That's how I know about mm -hmm. my family. Uh, we don't have a lot of pictures of the early years. They're all stories. I don't have the physical artifacts like a lot of families. They invest in taking the big family pictures when they're young and all that. We have a few things, but most of it is the stories that were passed mm -hmm. at dinner time or sitting on the, the, the doorstep uh, on the porch or at my grandmother's house in the country, uh, outside around. And we lived, as kids, we lived in the country. My grandmother was in the country. She had a farm, and we would go and sit around the fireplace. She mm. she lived and she cooked in an open fire. This is in mm. Southern California. Most people don't. We lived like that as kids. Mm. So we lived much like my uh, ancestors and my mother and father who grew up in the South. They lived in the country. And a lot of things were by nature. They were outside. Mm. So, again, in the long and the short of it, that's how we got connected. And I'll uh, pass it to you, David. That's, that's beautiful. David. Yes. Oscar, thank you for taking a start on the story. That's, I remember that call when you called in uh, the second time and said, hey, we got to do something with Black Lives Matter. And is there a way to connect people together over the Internet? And I said, well, I happen to be somewhat of a Zoom expert and doing a lot of these meetings, and we're doing the true storytelling modules. And why don't you try one out? And then let's see if we could create something together. And that's what Oscar did. And how we met, oh, it was an amazing time. 
when I went to UCLA, um, I was poor <laughs> coming out of the graduate program. I was poor before that. I was just, let's just say he was poor all the way through. <laughs> and uh, uh, I met Vice Chancellor Charles C. Wilson, and he had an amazing impact on me. He, the reason he sought me out in the Anderson School is um, he knew uh, about James March and Herbert Simon's work on That's systems. Right. And, and Carnegie Mellon, and he said, well, you trained with Lou Pondy, who was their first big student. And I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, I need you to work with me, and I'm, I want you to meet black leaders, Asian leaders, Latino leaders. There's more Samoans in L.A. than in Samoa. I want you to meet those Samoan leaders, you know, all over L.A. And he he just had me going all over L.A., and he said, I'll, I'll pay you through the Joint Center to write grants. And I needed that because at the time, I wasn't even getting 30000 a year, and I had a family support in L.A. I don't know if you lived in L.A., Glenn, but it's expensive there. Expensive. And uh, so I needed to have an extra job so I could be a professor job. I needed a second job, and that's what CZ provided. And I, I met Oscar at the Joint Center at Community Studies, and to me, Oscar was like a senior consultant who was out there doing things, mm -hmm. and I'm just coming in from Illinois and learning about L.A., and CZ is flying me up to Oakland and says, I need a, a grant for these, this group. And I said, okay, and he'd hand me a box of stuff and said, read this. It's Friday. I need a grant by Monday. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> I said, you need a grant by Monday? Are you kidding me? And uh, that's, that's the way CZ was, you know. And he yeah. would, this was, they would, he'd have uh, three or four secretaries and there'd be uh, some data people and he'd say, okay, what's the grant? <laughs> that's it. That's it. Where's the timetable? What are the deliverables? So I'm going. <laughs> And that's how I got baptized by C.Z. Wilson and, um, into working with community projects all over the city. It's just, I don't know how many grants I wrote, my 30 or 40. And, uh, but they were community-based grants. They weren't for some yeah. corporation to do something. They were grants of the community to uh, do grassroots kinds of things. Cool. So I, I just leave it there. Um, yeah. But I came, I came uh, out of a very poor background. and. Uh, mm -hmm. I say you probably call me white trash. If you met me, you know. <laughs> oh, no, you're <laughs> no way, no, no way. way, no way. But uh, but uh, thank you for your humility. <laughs> you you guys have done such great work, and thank you for those grants. Yeah, I I I know a little bit about grant writing, not as much as you guys do. Uh, that's it's beautiful things you've done. Um, so. Uh, now I want to kind of, you know, ask you, ask you to really, kind of ask you to take advantage of your deep skills here because we we've got, we're in a, a very pivotal time in in American history and in some ways in the history of the world. I mean, in the um, in the in the Trump era, um, in the last three and a half years, um, we have. Something very interesting going on. I mean, you know, if I were to frame it in a story, the story I like to tell is is a White Mountain Apache story, the story of a, an old woman who's weaving a beautiful rug. 
And as she nears completion of the rug, she gets up to stir a soup that's on the fire. But when she gets up to stir the soup, her black dog that's been sleeping in the corner awakens, takes the thread and pulls on it with his mouth and unravels the whole rug. The woman comes back and she sees the rug and where there was beauty and harmony, there's now chaos and disorder. But she doesn't, she doesn't, she's unfazed. She doesn't get mad at the dog. She just, she just stares at the rug for the longest time until she reimagines a new way to reweave the rug in beauty and harmony. And she picks up a thread to do just that, you know, and, uh, I love that story because it seems to say something about where we are in America today. Um, a lot of our institutions are unraveling, but we're also getting an opportunity to see America as it really is, you know, and then maybe we could, maybe we have an opportunity to change it. So, so an opportunity to restory, which is kind of, <laughs> it's such a beautiful word that you guys, you know, utilize because it really is, it says everything. Restore is about restoring, you know, and, and in, and in the last three and a half years, we've had a lot of hopeful signs too, you know, um, we had the women's march, which at the, at its time was the largest march in world history. And then we had the Me Too movement on the heels of that. And now we have what, you know, what Black Lives Matter already started, you know, back in the Obama administration. But now we have what, you know, I, I sometimes call Black Lives Matter 2.0, but other people have told me it's really 3.0 and that's, <laughs> that's up to you guys. Um, but you know, we're, we, we're at this crossroads, you know, we, in some ways we seem to be reliving the Civil War. And I'm really concerned about this current issue that's coming out around law and order. The political campaign seems to be devised around this, this law and order. But, you know, the words law and order are very loaded, and they mean very different things to different folks. So here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to do what you do best. I want you to build a storytelling tree, you know, at first looks at the the roots of the tree, you know, where the thoughts are that have maybe brought us to, to the way that we think of the world, the way we think about separation, maybe the way we think about nature, the way we think about race or class or gender. And then speak to the institutions that you see that are in the trunk of the tree, you know, that that are reinforcing these thoughts and and, 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 and making it almost invisible to people so that they just, that just what they take for granted. But then, you know, f- speak about that as, uh, as you, as you need to. And then what are the, and then you, you know, lastly, you can, you can speak about some of the symptoms, you know, that are manifesting in the leaves. But, 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 uh, but first I want you to focus on the, the thoughts and the institutions. So, I turn it to, uh, I guess, Oscar first, if you would. Yes, Gwen, I think that the, the tree is a great metaphor for uh, framing um, the state of affairs, uh, as we've used that in true storytelling modules. Uh, the roots, I mean, uh, there are many uh, value frames that separate culturally, uh, class, uh, separate the ideals, uh, which separate people. And 
just to give you an example, I served on a police commission in the city of Long Beach, uh, a ministerial police commission. I chaired that at one point. And one of the things that came out uh, in terms of belief systems is that you had a community, and a lot of this uh, stems from, you know, whatever the headset is in terms of economic design. We're in a capitalistic system, so a lot of it's about power base. So we believe that certain people shouldn't have power. Um, we believe that uh, communities of color, uh, if I'm an institution, a police institution, a law, a law and order institution, uh, I have already um, coded a code in my mind relative to people of color that they represent a certain behavioral profile. Uh, I don't have to talk to them individually. I don't have to have a conversation. That's just a physical observation. These are values and beliefs that are rooted uh, in the ideology of individuals that are then uh, seated through institutions uh, mm -hmm. in terms of how institutions act out on those beliefs and ideals. Um, that's just one example, and that's the law and order situation. You can go further in terms of um, looking at health care. If you go to a hospital, uh, there are many um, practitioners who won't provide the same level of service for a person of color, even though mm -hmm. they're in they're in need, <laughs> they're injured, they're in pain. Mm -hmm. They don't, they won't provide, even though they have an oath to provide this type of service, you get a different level of care. Mm. Um, and then you look at things like healthcare and we look at the medications we take and the treatments we're given, uh, the lack of recognition that there are some things that, uh, are not universal, right? We can't take a universal position in terms of uh, this drug that's created or some treatment that's created has the same effect across all people. I mean, this, these are just ideals. So we've identified that, hey, we'll create this one medication and everybody's supposed to take it. And it's supposed to have the same effect on everyone. So there's no context about your environment or your upbringing or your cultural uh, inputs relative to your uh, health and, 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 and how to care. These are just examples of what mm -hmm. we're doing. And then you look, you know, economically. When I wanted to major in economics, when I went to UCLA in the, in the 70s, dating myself, but uh, they, I was an athlete. I, I came on a scholarship, right? They didn't want me to major in economics. I had already decided I wanted to be a business major. UCLA didn't have a business major, but the institution in their mind was that a black kid uh, didn't have the the intellectual capacity to major in, in certain fields. So they didn't encourage it. And mm -hmm. thus, I had to embark on that uh, without the traditional support, um, which was challenging at an institution. Uh, like UCLA, but that's, these are the types of ideals, the rooted ideals and beliefs and values that uh, influence the institutions that are passed through in the institutions and proliferated and, and shared. And those are just examples, you know, top line examples. Mm. Mm, cool. And how did you, uh, how did you persist when, 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 when the, you were dissuaded from from taking on a 
career in economics. What gave you the the inner strength to to say no? Yes, I'm going to embark upon this career. Well, this is what I know I want to do. That was, I think that's uh, that was an internal strength. Uh, I know in my family line, people have always asked, "Where do you get that from?" Hmm. White people would always ask me, whatever I was doing, where do you get that from? That's the question. Where do you get the fight from? Where do you get that from? Because you're supposed, when I tell you that this is not possible or go left and you go right, you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to go left. Where do you get that from? And it's like a family thing. It's my whole lineage. Everybody has this something, and I think we're just born with that. But let me tell you the other part, and this speaks to why we're having this discussion today. It takes connecting to people. And what happened to me at the time, the athletic director was J.D. Morgan. And they told me that I was not going to major in economics. And I said, well, who can I talk to? And they said, well, nobody else can deal with this but the athletic director. So I just went right and knocked on his door. And he let me come and he said, what's there? What's, 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 how can I help you, young man? I said, I told him my name. I'm Oscar Edwards and I'm on the football team. I'm new here and I'm trying to register for school and, and I want to claim my major. And he said, well, uh, what's the problem? I said, well, all the counselors told, told me that, you know, uh, football players, you know, they, they're not up to the, up to it for majoring in economics. So, you know, uh, we're going to put them in a major that we think we can we can manage for them. Mm. He said, no, no. He said, no, that's your choice. Mm. That's your choice. And you go back and, 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 and tell the athletic director and tell the football coach that I said so. And I did. Mm. Good. And, and, and so, so what I'm saying is the ability to have a conversation, the ability to have a dialogue with someone else, to not have the fear to reach across the aisle, so to speak, have the conversation, you will find commonality, you will find allies, so to speak, you will find folks who have the common value that you have and are willing to march lockstep with you. And that was an example. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to say that. He could have just said, hey, that's the way it is. The football program calls that. But he had a different view of a collegiate experience, that the reason that it's a student athlete, it wasn't an athlete, it was a student athlete. And he said that. And that's why he sent me back to go and claim that. So that was just, you know, just a historical example in my early life, just starting off in life, that I couldn't accept that, what they told me. It could have been different. But I didn't. And it's, you know, that's pretty much how life. So you got to find, uh, as I reached out to David, you got to find folks who have a different take on things that have a more ethical frame about approaching things. And right. there are people in your life, there are people in your circle, but you got to be able to have the dialogue. You got to be able to reach out and communicate what the challenge is, what the opportunity is associated with the challenge. So. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, and it reminds me, you know, just last week we were interviewing, I don't know if you know her, but she's uh, 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 LaDonna Harris, um, Comanche woman who was 
married to Fred R. Harris, who was in the uh, in the Congress in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and LaDonna, you know, uh, like, you know, she reminds me of what you're speaking about. You know, it's reframing what true leadership is. Leadership is not about having control over others. You know, that's what it says in the dictionary. It's a terrible definition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so leadership is about, you know, reaching out and establishing the alliances, bringing everybody in, um, that has a, a vested interest uh, um, and bringing the community together. And then you've done that. You and David have done that together. You've, you've made allies. And that's what, uh, uh, that's a beautiful thing. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Oscar. I want to turn it over to, to David now for, um, um, and, and uh, yes, I am borrowing your own technique here, but I'm just saying, you know, build your storytelling tree. <laughs> Um, and, and, uh, you know, if, if you like to start in the roots where the thoughts are, you know, and, and how that has manifested and been reinforced in the trunk, those, those institutions. By the way, Oscar, I couldn't help noticing because I love to play with words that, that you were, you were embarking upon changing the institutions <laughs> that are in the, that are in the trunk of the tree. So you were embarking. You were, you were barking up the right tree. Thank okay. You. They, they said it was the wrong tree, but it was the right tree. So you did the right, right thing. All right. Anyway, I turn it over to you, David, and pardon my puns. But um, I can't help myself. All right. I guess my guidance counselor in high school, the story that comes to mind, Oscars, he said, uh, your future in life is as a gardener. <laughs> You're going to be a, maybe a landscaper mowing lawns or something. I'm looking at your high school record here. and uh, Also, you seem to have the best score in the whole high school for mechanical aptitude, so I'm thinking maybe you could be a mechanic, you know. Mm-hmm. So if I've listened to that high school guidance <laughs> <laughs> counselor, I might be making more money now, <laughs> and I'd be in a completely different area. So uh, don't listen to those high school uh, counselors. Uh, come on. And the other one is, uh, oh, geez, I was the first uh, person in the family tree on either side, mothers or father, that went to college, and that was after Vietnam. And to get out of the Army a little earlier, they had a program. So... Uh, so I grew up in uh, what's called very problem-saturated situations. Uh, uh, being a teenager with uh, my mother and her four children, I was the oldest. She's on welfare. That was a big thing in the community. They said, well, why, why can you come in this community? What, what makes you think you know about our situation? I said, well, I, I went to high school on welfare. <laughs> you know, I, I dropped out of school when I was 17. I finished, I got a degree, but I didn't really go to school. And uh, so, I mean, this you had to have credibility and trust in the community. You know, you couldn't come in and say, well, I have this other lifestyle in, in Malibu or something. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, now I understand all about what you, what's going on with you. That yeah. just doesn't work. But we start with re- restoring. What is restoring? Uh, it comes out of um, our work with uh, military families, for example, um, that we've done here in New Mexico, where you got post-traumatic stress disorder, you got traumatic brain injury. Okay, as a soldier, 
Okay, but that affects the whole family system. It affects the whole system, that problem saturation, you know. And the thoughts you've learned in the Army may not be all that helpful. Like, don't tell your spouse anything. <laughs> and they tell the spouse, uh, don't tell the soldier anything when they're overseas because that might put more stress on them. So mm-hmm. everybody's pretending in these fantasy worlds that wow. it's all okay. And they're basically lying to each other in the institution of the military. Hmm. And so you come out and you come home and you meet this person. You go, oh, you know, like when I came up to Vietnam, I mean, my wife and again and we've had very little contact in Vietnam you could have a phone call once a month through an overseas operator for five minutes you know now now everybody's got cell phones it's a whole different world but you still have not been telling the truth to each other in that relationship so it's mm-hmm. not much true storytelling going on <laughs> and then the military what do they do they pump you full of drugs and put you back on the line so maybe you come home addicted too. So you come home addicted, and your your family is moved to a different situation, and then you got all this uh, stuff to deal with. Not everybody, but a lot of people, a lot of soldiers. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see a seminar for the military. I'd like to see a seminar, Oscar. We do for the police. Um, mm-hmm. Police have a lot of stress now in their life. Police have yeah. a lot of. Not every policeman is a rotten apple. Uh, there are some. But you and I know policemen that we met that grew up in Nickerson Gardens in the largest public housing community west of the Mississippi. 5,000 people, you know, cut off from the rest of society. And they became policemen. What kind of policemen did they become? They were on bicycles. They knew the community. They knew the yeah. first names of the mothers and the children, you know. These are not the same policemen that uh, Dale Gates had hired. These are are different. So what do you do in restoring? What happens in restoring? Well, you're in a lot of trauma, you and a family, a family and a community. It's a system. The family system is one of those institutions in the trunk. And you've got a lot of thoughts running in your head and a lot of uh, past stuff is going on and you go you're kind of stuck in the past Mm -hmm. and these military family police family firemen family is stuck and so what we do is we try to get them unstuck by the restoring process how does that work well we get them to recall uh let's say police or were you always out there with your baton and dressed in your flak jacket, <laughs> you know, driving that big Humvee. Was that you? Did you ever do any other kind of policing? They'll say, well, yeah, I got to know some people there in the community. Uh, I got to know some of the homeless. Uh, I know them by name. I know, yeah, I, I'm familiar with some of the gangs, and I know why people are in the gangs. I said, okay. Can you take some of those, I call them acorns, can you take some of those acorn moments and put them together and plant a new tree, a mm-hmm. new kind of policing, a new kind of story for yourself? And that's where we, as, as you eloquently introduced it, uh, the roots of the tree are, are the thoughts. Right. The trunk of the tree is all the systems we're in. Those, those systems generate out of the thoughts. And what do they generate? The leaves, the new, the, all those behaviors 
that are atrocious and oppressive and some behaviors that are beautiful and loving and caring. So we have choice Mm. on what kind of behaviors these institutions manifest if we can work with the whole system. You don't treat the soldier. You don't treat the policeman. You treat the whole system. You treat the family system and the institution they're working in because the whole system has some dysfunctions. And you want you want that to be healthy. So in the, the true storytelling module that Oscar was so heroic and so courageous and so persevering in, in doing that storyboard, said, I want to do a storyboard on, for the communities involved in Black Lives Matter, and I want those communities to be talking to the white community <laughs> and to the Asian community and the global community so that those conversations don't get stuck the way conversations do. Mm. How do they get stuck? Well, people start blaming, oh, I'm a Republican, so I got the answer. Oh, I'm a Democrat, I got the answer. Guess what? Neither one of you got the answer because until you change the thoughts of the system, at a, you're not going to get original politics, as Glenn's book title is. You're not going to get anything original. It's just going to be the same uh, okay, in Los Angeles, when they got a new president, what happened? Well, the pictures of the president before Reagan would be taken off the wall, and then the Reagan picture would be put on the wall, and every bureaucratic police office, fire office, housing development, medical administrators, hospital, you know, you just took down the pictures. Did you change the system? No, you didn't change the system. You changed... The picture that's on the wall, that's not the same thing as changing the system. That's why CZ sought, sought me out, because David, he said, you know something about storytelling, and you know something about systems. Now put those together, mm-hmm. and uh, what can you do? What can you, A little story, just a short story. Sure. One, of the, one of the assignments CZ gave me was to meet Ted Watkins, and to take a ride through what had been the riot situation in the 60s. I was in the car with Ted Watkins. And, uh, Oscar, you met Ted. You know Ted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ted's saying to me, he says, okay, white guy. He didn't say white guy. I'm just embellishing. Mm-hmm. But he said, <laughs> Professor Boji, would you tell me what's different when I drive down this next block? And I said, what? <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> What's different? He said, okay, I'm going to drive you down another block. I want you to pay attention. <laughs> Look. And he said, okay, I'm looking out the car window. I'm like, okay, there's people there. There's six buildings. Um, there's some. There's a mother walking her daughter. Um, guy's crossing the street. One's got crutches. Is that it? It's crutches. He goes, no, no. You <laughs> idiot. This is the trees. After the Watts riot, we planted trees out here. My father and I planted oh that tree right there. Oh we planted yeah. trees. And oh. the difference between that last block you were on, there were no trees. Yep. Right. That's what did beautiful. that guy do, Chad? He moved uh, housing that nobody wanted anymore by the airport when they expanded LAX. Yeah. Put it up on a truck and a trailer and moved it out in the South Central. For 
better housing, you know. Better and housing. how did he protect the community? There's no magic to protecting a community. You need the old senior folks living in the community while the younger folks go to work and the kids go to school and the community's not victim to crime. So Ted knew that. And how did he, how did he work with that? He said, well, I'm going to hire the gangs and everybody to work to move these houses. And they're going to set up these houses. They're going to plant the trees. And they're going to tell their kids, we did that. I did that. You know? Hey, that I'm is, done. That's a beautiful story, David. And, uh, wow, that reminds me, you know, I originally grew up in the New York area. And I know that, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the South Bronx, when they first built all those uh, 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 low-income housing, what they did, which was uh, a horrific thing, is that they took away the trees. You know, they built this low, they built a, a big volume of low-income housing, but they took away the trees. And, and there were a lot of studies that, that, that finally figured out that without those trees, society collapses, you know. So, so really, you know, that, that's, that's some deep wisdom. You brought up so many things. I want to just touch on a couple points and then throw it back to both of you in the, in the remaining time we have. I mean, you're, you know, bringing storytelling together with systems knowledge and, and, and looking at the whole system, that does make a lot of sense. And, and this concept of re-storying is, is beautiful. It kind of, but I want to delve into that a little bit deeper. I want to press you guys on this a little bit more because this is, this is really an important pivotal point. I want people to understand really the depth of what you're saying because you know, it's, it, it, it can be, we can make a superficial change, as David was saying. We could just, you know, swap out the photos. I don't know if you've ever seen Woody Allen's movie Bananas, one of my favorite, favorite movies. At the, at the, you know, they're, they're the rebels. The rebels are trying to get rid of the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the government that, that, that they feel mm-hmm. is oppressing them. So they, 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 they're victorious. They take over. And then the, and then at the, and then near the end of the film, the, the new the new leader gets up there and he's and he and he tells people now we're in a new regime from now on i want everybody to wear their their underwear outside of their pants you know so you know and with the days of the week on it to make sure we know that you changed it you know i mean it's just the absurdity about how yeah there's a new government but it's the same as the old government or it's even worse you know um that is interesting so how do you really make how do you really make substantive change? How do you restory? Because, you know, sometimes I'm concerned about when people say, let's make new stories. Um, I was in a dialogue with Native elders and Western scientists in, uh, it was uh, 2002. I remember it well now. And I'm not going to say who, but a, a famous Western scientist said, and he meant well, but it was not received well by all Native people. He said, let's make some new stories together. Um, you know, we, we've heard about these old stories, but let's make some new stories together. Enough of the old stories, you know. And uh, and that was not received well by, you know, one woman got up. She happened to be on the board of the organization I had at the time. So she got up and she left the dialogue. And that normally never happens because Leroy Little Bear is a gifted moderator. And he would say to people, you know, be like hockey players, dialogue. You need to stick around, you know, and, 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 uh, uh, but, 
but she left because she said, you know, the news stories don't work. You know, we've, people are always trying to create news stories. There's new books, there's new libraries, there's new, you know, but the old stories, the, the ones that are, that are held in tradition, the ones that we've been telling from, 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 you know, time immemorial, those are the stories that work. Why don't you look at those stories, uh, another chance? So I, I want you both to talk about that. How, what is the balance between restoring and what, how much of that restory is new and how much is wisdom? Cause, you know, I, I love the wisdom of your, 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 the guy you're working with is CJ that knew to plant trees. You know, trees themselves have wisdom. It's probably why you do the storytelling with a tree as the symbol. So, so what is, uh, what is that balance between the, the restoring with element, new elements and bringing in wisdom and tradition to create balance? And I throw it to, uh, you, Oscar, first or, or David, whoever wants to speak to it first. We've got about, uh, We've got about uh, less than 10 minutes now, so... Okay, so. well, I'll give a first cut at it. Okay. I, I would say that, uh, and it's something that I'm studying as well in terms of, just in terms of just using uh, the framework of social network theory um, and, sh- and, 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 and sharing our stories, we're giving a better opportunity uh, to, in fact, look and hear the dialogue of the whole system, which David mentioned. So if you're in one lane, as I mentioned earlier, you know, if you're multicultural, and this is how my storyboard evolved from multicultural, looking at a multicultural arc uh, to impact racism, to intercultural. Why Mm -hmm. intercultural? Because multicultural really is talking about the embedded culture Recognizing the differences in culture, but not necessarily having a dialogue across culture. Mm-hmm. Intercultural, and, and we're using cultural, but we're talking cultural in terms of all contexts of society in my mind. All inputs, which is the whole system. The whole system is now available when you talk intercultural. Mm-hmm. We're talking across all contexts. Thus, it also speaks to the dynamics of social network theory of weak and strong ties. If I stay mm-hmm. embedded in my strong tie, the African-American community or South Central Los Angeles, I'm in a repetitive, redundant experience, which is the wisdom in the historical, mm-hmm. but the wisdom can create boundaries for me too. Mm-hmm. Can create boundaries, as Uzi says, right? Creates an inverse curve which now I've only grown to a certain point. And actually now I'm losing. I'm not gaining in terms of my knowledge or my growth in the whole system. I'm actually cocooning. And through storytelling, my personal experience going through it to begin with was I saw myself growing from the sharing of stories beyond where I was. I was hearing things that I've never heard in my world. I have a lived experience. Mm. I mean, this all happened in a few weeks. In the in the storytelling framework, in the network that David invited me to. Mm. So that happened. That was instantaneous. That would have never happened 
if I stayed in my lane, if I stayed in my same neighborhood, mm. okay, I stayed in my same group of influence, that does not happen. Mm. So a matter, just imagine if we had the ability with true storytelling, with the framework of the conditions, everybody just tell the truth. We're not going to judge anybody. We're going to listen to your story. We have nothing to add to your story. It is your story. Mm. Okay? And you allow that. That's a growth. It's organic. It's just as a, I'm, I'm not determining what kind of water, whether the water came from Latin America or South America, I had to import it when I watered the tree. The mm. tree is getting water, period. So when we share all our stories, they're all stories. It's just like water. Mm. It's one. And we can flow as one once our stories inform all of us. We're mm. fully informed. Right now we lack the wisdom, the collective wisdom across society, across cultures. We lack. We mm. lack the ability to do that. That's what true storytelling is allowing us to do. That's what it's doing for us. We are able to create a flow of water and emergence of one source. Even though they come from different streams, it's one source. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's we're one. We've all flown together through the collective stories. Mm-hmm. And that, so you can't put a weight on it. You can't wait wisdom over here or wisdom over here. No. It is a holistic wisdom that informs all of us equally, collectively. And that's mm. my personal experience. That's what I've received already. Beautiful. So I'm thankful for David and, and, and all the rock band uh, true storytellers because I've, I've already received that. I, I've, I've, I've already gained from that. I'm in it, but I'm still gaining, but I'm already gaining. That's why I'm sharing it with everybody because I've already gained. Beautiful. And I see, I see the, the outcomes already. Mm. Well, so, so that's my, that's, that's how I see it. There's not a weight on it. It is the process of allowing the flow to come to one stream. So we have many streams of knowledge and wisdom, but we're allowing and accepting the emergence and the merger of those to one. Mm. Wow, that's so beautiful. It's like mm-hmm. a, it gives me this image of this confluence of many rivers and they're and they're flowing out, you know, the um out into the ocean. And that ocean is that collective wisdom. Yes. And and you're a wise man to allow that process to unfold organically. So and uh and to put yourself in it. So thank you. Uh David, any last minute thoughts? I've just that uh uh how you can merge the uh, wisdom and the new in your storytelling rock band project. You better tell people what that means to the rock band because they're going to go away saying, what is, what's the, what are you talking about? All right. So, go ahead. Oscar's the new Stevie Wonder, you know. And, uh, we're, the rest, we're just the accompanying instruments, you know, to the star in the rock band. So, Okay, so let's, let's, I'll speak to the white dominant race, okay? First of all, there's only one race, 
Mm. And that's the human race. Mm. Right. Second, uh, we organized the agenda of the module for the first two sessions. We weren't going to get into this. Well, white people, aren't they, don't they experience racism too? <laughs> mm. <laughs> and haven't, haven't I been discriminated against and reverse discrimination? I said, instead of doing that, we're going to start you off reading some black history by black academics that have lived it. And so instead of you, the, see, why are we doing true storytelling? Because I discovered I grew up with a false history, a false narrative of what was going on in America, what was going on in the world, what was going on in economics what was going on, just a bunch of false narratives. Mm. And I woke up, and I, I just, I'll be as quick as I can. My mother, I was 53 years old, and I said, hey, I want to understand my family tree. And she says, no, no, you don't. I said, I do. <laughs> and she pulls out, <laughs> like, a shoebox full of photographs. And she was so emotional about it. She pulled out one. She says, this is your grandmother, Wilda. I said, I never knew her name, Wilda, huh? Wild A. And she's riding a horse. What is she doing? She was a, she was a rodeo star, and women didn't do that back then. I said, oh, okay. And, and, and another, and what is this picture? Oh, that's a, that's Georgie. Uh, Georgia, we think her name is. She's in a papoose. And, uh, she was married to Gerald. And Gerald was Wilda's brother. Your, your grandmother's brother. And they, they killed him in Goldendale, Washington, because he married a Native American. Um. I said, oh, okay. Hey, and I'll tell you, on your dad's side, your dad isn't so clean either, you know. His, your grandfather, August, his brother was named Ed. They scratched his name out of the Bible when he married a Puyallup princess from the coast of Washington State. Uh-huh. And you know there's boats living on reservations today from that marriage. Mm-hmm. And we, we, I said, what's her name? We don't know her name. We just call her the princess. And nobody ever talked about it to me until I was 53 years old. Wow. That's how much the family secret. So when I'm saying in the white community, you grow up without a history, without the historical facts. I'm talking about the deep history. So why do we do restoring? The first thing you got to do is get people in touch with history, the deep history. So what do we have them read? I had the white participants read some Cedric Robinson, read two of his students, Fred Moten and Robin Kelly. Mm-hmm. These are people who teach in black programs. Mm-hmm. And Barbara Ramsby, and Boots Riley. Hmm. So they start to, they were coming back on, I can't believe that, that police were originally put together to go find the slaves that had run away. I couldn't believe that there was King somebody or other in England had a rule that to, uh, I don't know, behead or however they, strung them up or something if they married into a Native American because you had blacks running off with Native Americans and they weren't working the plantation anymore. So, That's right. well, later on, that that thought 
that you don't do that still seeped into the culture generations later so that, and I know you got some stories, Oscar, I hope we get to one of them, that you didn't admit that you had anybody in your family that had indigenous blood. There was that time in American history where that was true, you know? And uh, when we talk about we talk about something called racial capitalism, and that's what they were reading about, because that wow. trunk of the tree is racialized. I am done. Okay, yeah, yeah. and uh, point we just have a couple of minutes, but I'd like to, yeah, I would like to give Oscar a couple minutes to talk about, uh, oh, yeah. about because he was telling me the other day about that yeah. uh, as well, and some of his family secrets. Yeah, so that's, we get, uh, yeah that's true, Glenn. I mean, that, if you that, don't mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I very much so. I mean, that, that experience is what David uh, just captured is true in my family as well. I mean, uh, my grandmother, uh, you know, uh, black and, and Native American uh, descent and and married in with my father and uh, told me as a kid when I wanted to know about the history on that side of the family. Uh, you don't, I mean, it's something you don't need to know. And eventually mm. it seeped out over time that the reason you don't need to know is that um, historically that was not accepted. And even to, you know, when she was living, she still felt that way. That's not something that uh, if you're living in the South in particular, because of the dominance and the, the white supremacist profile, and we're talking now in the sixties, seventies, eighties, she still felt that way, that that, is something that you really don't need to know that much about because it uh, has a different spin uh, with certain populations down here, and they're going to look at you differently. And so, yeah, it is true. And But the restoring that we're doing uh, by starting with the history, as David mentioned, and the facts uh, in my family, I've learned a lot, and my kids have learned a lot more to put it in the proper context. So the point that it really is being made with, true storytelling is the fact that if we don't share the true story, how can, how can we get to the restory? Because if you don't share the true story, you're repeating the story mm-hmm. that's been written. Mm-hmm. You're repeating the same story. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be locked into this thing and that sustains the structure, the power structure that is, it will remain the same. And it is going to be the ability to share and to grow from the collective wisdom that we change the structure, the power structure. That is beautiful. That's a, that's a good point where we're going to, we're going to begin to wrap up because that, that, what, what, how true that is. And when we start all telling true stories, we're going to tap in more to that collective wisdom because there's a lot of people that, can relate to what's going on. I mean, you know, very briefly, you know, when Oscar was telling me about how his story and his family history, that, that he's, he's got Native American blood in his family, you know, I, I said to him, you know, that probably happened during, you know, during the times of Andrew Jackson, where he rounded up the, uh, the Creek and the Seminole and the Chickasaw and the Choctaw and the, and the, and the Cherokee and, and moved them from southeastern part of the United States out to, to Oklahoma. And he moved them along with, uh, 
black slaves and free blacks and mm-hmm. and it was a it was an attempt to to exclude it was an attempt to exclude but it ended up causing love you know sometimes to mix people mixing um and uh, that is that's very beautiful and there there is opportunity so i you know i'm i'm optimistic i mean I'm, i i know this is a difficult time i'm also realistic i suppose everybody always thinks they're realist you know but uh, anyway um you know we're moving into autumn now so i'm hoping that there's going to be some new root thoughts that are going to grow um because that's what a tree does and i'm hoping that there is some some roots being being planted that are that are going to blossom into into good thoughts and good deeds and good actions and good collaboration and love so thank you thank you both um this has been a wonderful program because i you're both shining examples of of passionate people trying to restore the world in an authentic uh involved way so thank you so much for your hearts your minds and your determination This program has been made possible by Select Books, Waterside Publications, Bizgenics and the Ecology Prime Media Channel, Native Flute Music by Orlando Secatero, From the Pathways CD, Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey and Danny Casey, post-production editing by Scout Media Strategies, The Circle for Original Thinking, is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on earth for more information or to volunteer and we do need volunteers for both pre-production and post-production for this podcast go to originalthinking.us or originalpolitics.us and you can also find and purchase my books original thinking and original politics there thank you very much for listening and until next week many blessings of good health and well-being to you thank you oscar thank you david that was wonderful thank you so much thank you yeah. thank you both bye bye for now thank you david